Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, physician and informatics researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, at KBJOHNSONMD, or at KBJohnsonMD on Twitter, and at www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net on the web. In this episode of Informatics in the Round, I'm joined by a half dozen guests. That's a lot for us, and let me explain why. I've had the good fortune of working with co-editors David Weintraub and Anne Neely on a book series called Who Me? And that book series has been published now by World Scientific Publishing. The first two books are out, and one of them happens to be about me. And I've been talking to some friends about the book, and they said, are you going to do an episode about this on your podcast? And I said, well, to start off 2022, why not? So in this episode, I have Sarah Bland, who, as you all know, is a regular on the podcast and a leader in Vanderbilt's Center for Precision Medicine, along with her son, Bradley. I also am enjoying the company of Yah Kumar Crystal, a physician and clinical informatics expert at Vanderbilt, and a role model, frankly, for African-American women around the country. And she has brought her son, Jude. We also have Jane Bach, who is a songwriter and storyteller extraordinaire, and, of course, Shannon Rich, who's my very smart and very courageous friend. Why all these guests? Because this topic is all about me, and I wanted to give kids and their parents a chance to ask questions about me and my career choices in life. I want to warn you that the guest asks me some very personal questions that I answer honestly. It might not be for everyone's taste, but, you know, that's what the fast-forward button is for. Anyway, I hope you learned a bit about me and about my journey from this episode. It's a long episode, so without further ado, let's get started. So let's see, who do we have here? We have, um, so Sarah, and, and, and who is this uh, person to your left? This handsome young man is my son, Bradley. Hey, Bradley, how are you? Good. Recently adopted son, too. Oh, how wonderful. Yep, uh, finalized uh, December 3rd. Oh, oh my goodness, Wonderful Christmas. Thank you. Just fabulous. We've been watching this all happen, and we're so excited that it's happened now, Bradley. So I show you've got to be very excited. Um, although, you know, you've got two crazy moms. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, he, he fits right in, that's for yeah. sure. We've had to tell him that he has to be very careful when he says, cool story, bro. <laughs> yeah, good idea. <laughs> I like the fact that you guys have the same comb over. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He gets it from me, actually. Yeah, yeah, sure. And Jude, is that you? Yes. Hey, Jude. Don't, be, af- don't be afraid. <laughs> this is a great group. Uh-oh. <laughs> we'll take a sad oh, song God. and make it better. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. I love it. So, Jude, what have you been up to? I, I uh, just traveled to Baltimore. Oh, so basically what I'm hearing you say is that you and Yah were here, not too far from my house, but chose not to come over. <laughs> That's all Blue I'm hearing. A all I'm hearing is, all I'm hearing is that I was completely dissed 
by <laughs> friends from Tennessee who came in the area and left without seeing me. So, so are you up in Baltimore now? Uh, we're in Owingsville. Owingsville. It's the Ricerstown Pikesville area. My my parents live there. They're at the atrium, which is a senior living complex on Owings, right off of Owings Mills Boulevard. Oh off my of, goodness! Off of Lakeside. That's what I thought. <laughs> I'm, and how long are you going to be there? We're here until the thirty first. There's a chance I'm going to be there in the next two days. That's crazy. I might have to stop you. <laughs> Should I call you and let you know? Oh my God, please do. Even yeah, if it doesn't work out, it'd be great. Hey, Shannon. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Hi, folks. My name is Yakuma Crystal. I'm a pediatric endocrinology and biomedical informaticist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I have here with me my son, Jude Crystal. Hi, uh, I'm Jude Crystal. Uh, I'm in fifth grade and I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. Excellent. Admirable. Hey, uh, I'm Sarah Bland, Senior Project Manager uh, in the Center for Precision Medicine uh, at Vanderbilt, um, podcast extraordinaire. And today I have my son, Bradley. Hi, my name is Bradley. I'm 11 years old and I'm in fifth grade and I like baseball and I want to be a baseball player when I grow up. There you go. He decided not to be the a copycat and become an astronaut just at the last <laughs> second. I'm impressed. <laughs> Both admirable professions. They are. My name is Jane Bach, and I am not half as intelligent as you people are. I'm feeling very inferior. Um, I am just a songwriter here in Nashville, and I actually met Kevin through Shannon. Uh, Shannon and I have known each other since, I think, 1996 or something. I mean, a long, long time. And uh, she introduced me to Kevin, and I've been able to participate in these wonderful podcasts where I learn so much. And contribute so, so much. So, well, so Jane, since not everybody here knows your songwriting prowess. Oh. About you, what, is your, what, are you, what are your top two or three big hits? Oh, my gosh, Kevin. <laughs> Come on. I've been, very, I've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate. And I, I have been able to have a lot of songs recorded and I've had a few hits and, and it's been wonderful. It's been fabulous. I've, I've been very fortunate to have a life that I really enjoy living, doing what I love. And I have the feeling that you women understand what I'm talking about. So it's a real gift when you can do what you love to do. So Shannon, welcome to Santa Fe area. Hi, I am in a hotel right now, which is not the most perfect situation for trying to do this um, with my two dogs that are not going to be good. I can promise you I am. I work in IT, which is why I'm having all the computer problems today. <laughs> uh, and I just moved to New Mexico. So I've been here a week in two days. That is so awesome. So far. Really I is. love I'm and as opposed to. You know, as opposed to being in the Northeast, I love Santa Fe, New Mexico area, Albuquerque. It's some great stuff. So I'm looking forward to visiting and trying the red and the green sauces. Oh my gosh, they're serious about that red and green here. They really it's, are serious. You guys, it's, it's worth going. So let me tell you what we're doing today. Um, I, I am a little bit embarrassed about this. So as you guys know, the role I usually play is I play the role of the bridge between a lay audience who are listening and or a songwriter who is learning <laughs> and experts in the field of informatics in various places. But my book just came out. It's a, it's a book that is all about my life and why I 
you know, how I kind of prepared myself for a career in science. And all of these people, a couple of you who are on this, on this have been interviewed already, like Jude, which did a masterful job already. Um, but they've asked me questions. And, and then one of my colleagues at work here at uh, Vanderbilt said, uh, so why aren't you doing a podcast talking about this? And I said, well, number one, because I always interview, I don't get interviewed. And he goes, well, that's like easy for you to fix. So I said, okay. So um, you guys, at least some of you have had a chance to read the book and Jane, you've had a chance to see the little mini video, maybe. I did. But you also know a lot about me. There it is. Thank you. Yes, I'm okay. Okay, wait, let me get a picture of that. Hold it up again. <laughs> Everybody smile. <laughs> okay, good. I got it. I love Bradley. It's like, he's like young Vanna. <laughs> yeah, Bradley and Jude, what did you think of the book? I think it was really good. I thought it was pretty cool, uh, good. He's always like so much more critical. <laughs> what part did you like about the book? Uh, I like the part where your family supported you. Yeah, my family did a good job of supporting me for the most part. I'll definitely tell you that there were periods in my kind of early days. You know, every parent wants their kid to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And I was kind of heading down the road of being a veterinarian. And I would say that they were cautiously supportive, <laughs> right? They were like, if this is what you want to do, we're okay with it. But we wondered why you don't want to become a doctor. And of course, the funny, funny thing was they never bothered me about it. They just said that. And then when I got to college, um, I had a friend who had got really, really sick. And at the time I was going to be a veterinarian and I was all set to do that. But while he was sick and I was watching his doctors just do a terrible job of taking care of him, I kept thinking, I can, if this is all it takes, I can be a doctor. <laughs> so I thought, okay. So I switched. Bradley prepared questions because I am a strict mother. So <laughs> my first question is why do why do pet store owners have these animals and don't have any idea how to take care of them or deal with them? So for those people who didn't read the book, one of the things I did as a kid, I was really into biology and I was very much into exotic lizards and things like that. And so, you know, I read a lot, right? So I, I knew before I bought things, what, what, it, what was required. And a lot of it was kind of like very specific environments, very specific lighting, very specific watering arrangements for different types of animals. Many animals have never been anywhere near a lake or a stream. So they don't know how to drink water from a bowl because they've never had to do that. So there are certain lizard species that if you don't spray the tank so that they can get dew, they will absolutely dry up and, and, and from dehydration because they cannot drink from a bowl. So you go to the pet store and as soon as you see a bowl, sometimes they'll stick cotton in it because they think that's going to work. As soon as you see that, you know that lizard's going to die. So I think a little bit of it is that they just don't pay any attention. I think the whole idea for a lot of these pet stores is they buy things, they put them in, and they hope that they are selling them so quickly that they outrun their ability, their inability to take care of them. So I was one of those kids um, who would go to these pet stores and I would see really exotic lizards, like the golden tegu story, I think is the one that's in the book. And so there was uh, these gorgeous golden tegu that do not drink from a cup or a bowl and don't eat mealworms. They need protein like mice, babies and stuff like that. 
So I, I told the store and, and they're very, they're hard to find, right? So at the time, I don't know how much they cost. Now they probably cost $80, $90, but they had it in the same tank as uh, Carolina Anoles, which are the little green, often called chameleons that you see. And that's where, and I said, hey, how much were the big chameleon? And they said, oh, $5.99. I went, okay, great. Took it home, did great. <laughs> <laughs> I was that kid, a little sneaky, you know, I, there were the occasional white lies to kind of help, you know, on behalf of these animals. But that was that was well, the thing is that they didn't even know. Right. I they mean, didn't deserve to get the full exactly. price for that. Right. I'm with you on that one. Right. The other thing I did, and I think in part this was because I didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. So I discovered other ways to sort of do things that I found interesting. So I liked a lot of pet, a lot of plants. I was visiting a high school principal of which used to be my biology teacher from ninth grade. So he introduced me to the class and he said, Kevin is the student who came up with the idea for the plant exchange. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you like? I have no idea what you're talking about. And he goes, Kevin, don't you remember? You were the one who went in the greenhouse and discovered that many of the plants we had, you could take a leaf off, put it in soil and grow a new plant. And so you started telling people to bring in all of their plants from home and, and cuttings, and we would grow them. And then people could swap and get new plants. And I went, that totally sounds like me. And I, I actually remember doing it. Like, I remember the end of it, but I didn't remember that it was my idea. And, <laughs> and I just didn't remember it until he talked about it enough. And I thought, yeah. And he had been doing that for 30 some years after I did it. It's been, it's been an ongoing biology thing for all of his classes. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Did you have another question? Uh, why do you like computers? Why do I like computers? Because you know what? For a long time, I actually didn't like computers. Um, but what happened was I got to college. So when I was in college, we were in general chemistry class, Jude. And while I was there, we had to learn how to balance these equations. And the teacher said, the only way to balance the equations is to go to this computer system where you put in all of the different amounts of carbon and amounts of oxygen to make it equal what you needed at the other end, um, which is called stoichiometry. And as I was in the process of doing all of that, I had to use a computer. And there was this kid behind me from the Netherlands who was playing this game called space that it turns out another kid had written that's in the same class. So I went over and was watching them program this game. And I'm like, so you can use a computer to, to write a game? Like, I didn't like to play the games, but the whole idea that there was this kind of way that you could make the computer do what you wanted, that I found very cool. That was like a computer erector set for me. And it was just like, whatever ideas you had, I could program them in. So I wrote my own game. I wrote a game called Hunter, uh, did very well on the campus. Uh, I wrote a game called, or that I ended up writing the email system that we used for my, uh, I was the um, president of the college choir. And so I wrote the system that we used to communicate in the college choir, as well as when any, whenever anybody dropped out to have, we had a wait list. And so it automatically promoted people from the wait list, automatically sent them an email inviting them to join the choir. I mean, the whole thing. And then basically once I started learning how to do it, one of the teachers in my college said, you know, why don't you get a major in computer science? And I said, well, number one, I'm a junior at that point, and I'm not going to stay here and get a major. And he goes, no, 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 no. We've seen your work. We will give you the scene. We'll give you the class final 
for the freshman series. And if you do well enough, we'll pass you out of all those classes. Wow. It's like, that doesn't, wow. that, yeah. So I took yeah. the test. I passed the test. The questions were really easy in retrospect, because if you program a lot, it's kind of easy stuff like true yeah. or false, you know, a for loop does the following thing. And I was like, that's easy. So I just answered all the questions and I passed it. And then I ended up taking harder classes. And then I got a minor in computer science. I didn't get a major because I had other interests, but I did get enough to carry the courses to get a minor in it. So that's how I got the computers. And even now, um, I love programming much more than I love a lot of other things about computers. I'm not all about the programming language development or database development. I just like being able to make it do things that I'm thinking about. In a way, it's kind of like my version of drawing. Uh, my other question is, were computers invented to help people or remind people to, things to do? Hey, Jane, do you remember why, why computers came to be? Do I remember why they came to be? I remember when they came to be. Tell, tell, us, about, tell us about that, because I can't answer this question the way he wants me to. Oh, what okay. do you remember well, about computers? I mean, you know, what do I know about computers? I turn it on and I hope it works. I, um, but I do remember when I was still in high school, I had a, a next door neighbor whose younger sister was in college at the time and she went to NYU and I, I grew up in New York. And so she went to NYU and she was learning. I remember she was majoring in computer programming. I didn't even know what a computer was. And um, of course, you know, she came over one day to visit her brother next door. And I said, I remember her name was Sarah. That was her name. And I said to her, what is computer programming? And she ex kind of explained it to me. And she took me to a couple of weekends went by and she took me down to NYU uh, to their computer room. And I mean, the computers were the size of the room. <laughs> they yes. were huge. They were enormous, absolutely enormous. And um, they filled up the entire room and they were noisy. They made a lot of noise. And um, when I, when I, a number of years went by and I was in college and I had a part-time job and I had to type and the typewriter that I was using had a floppy disk. And I just, you put the floppy disk in, you know, and all the, yeah. and I just thought I was living in a science fiction movie. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was like, put it in, press the button and just spit out everything you put into it. It was remarkable. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And, oh yeah, but I didn't really get into computers until I'm embarrassed to say maybe the mid to late 1980s. And um, my first computer was a, a small screen, but big computer, an Apple, a Macintosh. That's what they called it, a Macintosh. It just, it, it just seems so remarkable to me. Everything that the computer could do uh, just seemed so incredibly unreal to me, growing up without it. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, it was interesting. I look back on it now, of course, and where would we be without them? It's just so above and beyond me. It really is. I'm a great songwriter and I'm a guy <laughs> what I do. But when it comes to understanding things like that, I don't have the brain for it. I just don't. Well, Jane, how do you use like either your computer, or your cell phone or anything like that to facilitate your songwriting? 
Oh, I do use it tremendously. I mean, everything I used to do was on legal pads and in file folders, you know. What what the computer helps me to do as far as my songwriting is concerned yeah. is um, a lot of things that need to be done like registration of songs, copyright registration of songs, um, registering with ASCAP, which is a performing rights organization that pays me, that sends me my money. And, um, you know, it's, yes, of course, I, I write on the computer. I keep my lyrics on the computer. I have a music program, you know, that I use to record work tapes. Um, I could record an album if I wanted to on my computer, which is mind-blowing. Mind oh, mind-blowing, mind-blowing. When I first started doing what I do, it was the same thing. We were in a control room with huge equipment and, um, you know, and nothing could be taken with you. We had three quarter inch tape that we used and it was just, it's remarkable. Bradley, let me say one thing about the computer part that you asked me. So number one, Penn, it turns out, where I'm at now, the University of Pennsylvania, is the birthplace of the ENIAC computer, which is the first ever computer. And ENIAC is E-N-I-A-C, which stands for Electronic numerical integrator and computer. And last week or two weeks ago, I saw the ENIAC. There's a piece of it. It's all, it's a giant, as Jane said, there's one panel that's about the size of a walk-in closet. It's got these tubes that look like light bulbs. And those are the way that the circuits are managing on and off. They're these vacuum tubes. And it's a very different type of thing. Um, I knew nothing about any of this. So when I first got involved with computers, um, it was exactly what you said, which was it was all about healthcare for me. But it turns out that the history of computers was pretty much all about the Department of Defense. It was all about how we can process information well enough to either win a war or create a bomb. I mean, honestly, that's where computers came from. And if you look up the history of the ENIAC, you'll hear all about the people who first invented it and how quickly it was kind of immediately walled off into its own little Department of Defense lab. And then they made clones of the ENIAC, which are even around today. In all of these um, government labs, there are like at, for example, Oak Ridge National Lab, which is not too far from you guys. Oak Ridge is still the home right now of one of the fastest supercomputers in the world. So that's how they came out. I was more interested about in them for healthcare. But as, as Jane's kind of noting, the people who want to do good things with computers are easily balanced by a group of people who have a very different computer agenda. And so a big part of what we, we've talked about has to do with how we can get the things we need to do to make healthcare amazing without you know, letting the other group of people in on data or computation or even into your home in ways you didn't ex expect them to be. Um, Shannon, so by the way, Shannon, what's your history of getting into computers? Oh my goodness. Um, I didn't, that was never a goal. It was never a plan. It was kind of an accident. I had moved to Boston uh, in the eighties and I was working for a temp agency and I got to be very close with a woman at Digital Equipment, which was the second largest computer company at the time. Vanderbilt used to use deck equipment quite a bit, their um, mainframes and stuff and their vaxes. 
but anyway, I got to be good friends with her. She said, I've got a job over here for you. And I said, no, no, Joan, I don't even know how to type. I don't even, I don't know anything about it. You <laughs> right. I uh, like go away. And she kept saying, no, you'll be perfect for this. And, and she brought me over uh, to digital and I worked there. I worked with their internal software engineers that were making software. And my next job there, I worked with internal hardware engineers that service and sold digital equipment to digital equipment. So were the internal uh, software people. They were building software for digital to use um, internally. And then I, my final job there was in management sciences. All of these like fabulously smart people at the beginning of it. And I had no idea what I was doing and they just kind of took me in and taught me everything and let me go wild and said, here, try to break it here, try to do this. And so I really just kind of fell into it. When I wrote Hunter, this computer game, it was on a VAX 11780. Ah! So that was my first computer that I ever really understood well enough to kind of really get in and manage the clock. Um, because when you, when you write games, bullets have to be timed. So you have to actually know the clock speed of the computer so that your bullet doesn't go, you know, and you can't see it. It has to be, you have to manage the time so that your bullet goes across the screen in a way that we can see it. One of the women that I worked with in another department had written this database and I needed something like it. I didn't need her database, but I needed something like it. And I took her database and I would go in I would make changes to it, save it, come back and look at what it would look like <laughs> and go, oh, that's not what I meant to do. <laughs> and I mean, literally, I changed it one line at a time until I got the, the database functionality that I did. And so, well, I think that's our generation, you know, so Bradley, part of our generation was computers were coming out. While we were, we had already come up with a whole other career. So imagine if, yeah. you know, like, yeah. you know, you want to be an astronaut or something, right? So imagine that if you wanted to be an astronaut, well, how do I say this? Imagine if you were born in the early 60s and there were no astronauts yet. So yeah. you, would have, you would have had to decide that you wanted to be an astronaut after you first saw that there were astronauts, right? So a lot of us who picked computers in my generation as a career, couldn't have possibly come up with that because there were no computers. We would have, we would have been in charge of like the abacus. It would have not have been anywhere near as much fun. So, um, well, the other thing I was going to say about computers that related to this, because it's funny when you guys tell these stories about the past, I hadn't really thought about it too much. Um, I had a job that I always forget about telling people. So once I figured out that I was interested in computers, every summer I had to go make money to get into college for the next, use money for the next college year of books and things. I got a job working for social security administration for the summer. And all I did all summer long was code fix. So I wrote Fortran code to fix problems and load these giant tapes onto these um, computers. Oh my gosh. Because the way that Social Security ran the jobs was everything was on these big tapes that looked like a giant album. And they were a little thicker, about this thick. And a big album. And so the, the computer would actually tell you what tape number to load. 
you would go over, take the old tape off, put the new tape on. And we used to have races to see who could finish their job first, because there were a bunch of us who were doing this. And you'd have a case that was about the size of sort of the box that you would normally now get paper in, you know, a carton of paper or like a U-Haul box filled with your tapes for the night. And all you do is put them on. It would run like sometimes you would put the tape on, it would load the tape for you, it automatically vacuum loaded it, and it would go. And that would be all it needed from the tape. And then it would say, load up another tape. So you'd be like, you couldn't believe you had to sit there and watch it do all of these tapes. So I had like six different tape drives that I was in charge of. And that's my job at night for the whole summer. Best job I ever had. Fantastic benefits. Gave sick time, <laughs> vacation time, lunch breaks. Oh, it was wonderful. Air conditioning, great lighting. Nobody, no bosses. Who wants to be in there munching, you know, watching us manage tapes, right? But one of the things it taught me was about the inside of how computers work, that computers are tricky, that there are these bugs that get in the code, and we had to fix some of the bugs that were found in the code. And it was, it was kind of like the inside of how big businesses manage computers. I can't help but to say that, like, you just added a perk for that job was great lighting. Yeah. I <laughs> like, like, don't ever write a job description again. We offer great lighting. Great lighting. <laughs> well, you know why I say that? Because I worked at the job I had before that was that same summer. It was an amazing summer. Um, I started out because a friend of mine said he could get me a job at the Pepsi Cola bottling distributor, which was in Baltimore, which you guys drive. If you go down 83, you'll see it as you're heading south on the left. And we went in there and the first day in this dark noisy place one of the people who was hired lost his hand <gasps> oh. so so they're busy doing the what happened was a bottle shattered and it went right across and severed his hand okay so i was with people who were saying you should not be working here if you want to be a surgeon like immediately oh. people were looking at me going get out of here this is a bad place for you to be but i i needed the money it was a union job, so it paid really well. Um, but the re but the thing was, it was really dark and it was hard to see. And they wouldn't even stop the machine when this guy lost his hand. So they had to they had to like yell to get the machine to stop so that they could get him in the hand to the hospital. And you know, I mean, it was kind of like this is unbelievable. So yeah, I I kind of do think of the social security job as like this safe space, right? It was kind of like no people. <laughs> Good lighting, no yeah. hands, no hand severing equipment. You know, this whole podcast took a really dark turn. I know. Well, it's your fault. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. But we're laughing. That's true, right? The, the the whole point about that is to say there are all these jobs, right? And I can still remember. Do you guys all remember this? I remember the day that I found out that not every one of my teachers actually wanted to be a teacher. Um. <laughs> I, I remember yeah. asking, I mean, Jude, did you, did, did this surprise you that I said that? Yes. Yeah. So I was talking to our social studies teacher and I said something like, when did you want to, when did you realize you wanted to be a social studies teacher? And his answer was, I never wanted to be a social studies teacher. I wanted to be a politician, but life happens. And he had, I think in his case, he fell in love they ended up getting married and he realized he needed to make money. And the only thing he could do was to start teaching. There's a whole movie about this called, anybody remember the movie about the guy who didn't want to be a music teacher? 
Mr. Holland's Opus? Yes, yes. yes. Right. Oh, so, that's such a good movie. Yes. Wonderful movie. But but the one thing in common that these people at the Pepsi Cola place had, or and as you guys know, I love movies, or shows like Taxi, is that there's this subtext of a whole lot of people who really don't want this to be their job. And I remember thinking early on, the fact that some of these people wanted to be something else but weren't teachers shocked me. And therefore, I was really going to have to work hard if I was actually going to be the thing I wanted to be, because there were a lot of reasons why it might not happen. It turns out that it's all related, that these jobs that you're hearing us joke about are the jobs that we don't want. And, and you end up with them. So that's part of, I think a part of what I learned early on was I had to care about what I wanted to do enough that I used my skills and got jobs that I thought mattered and they built on each other. I learned a lot of things at, you know, the Pepsi Cola bottling place. I was only there a week, but I learned a lot enough that when I saw patients who had come from the Pepsi Cola bottling place, I could say, oh, I was there. This happened. You know, do they still have that crappy little lunchroom they're like oh my god the lunchroom is so bad there's 20 of us in this one little room you know it, and it help, it helps patients to feel comfortable talking to us because we aren't just these you know geeky doctors who use computers we've had a whole life so interesting because i always feel like sometimes life takes you on a journey somewhere and that's how you find out what it is you want to do. You never realized you wanted to do it. That's right. You wanted to do something else and something happens that prevents it. And you think it's the end of the world, but it's the old when the door closes, the window opens and it, you know, takes you into maybe a different direction into yeah. something you never even thought you could do. And I think all three of those paths um, are, are on this call, right? Uh, there's people who knew from the very beginning they wanted to be whatever they are now. There's people who, you know, they were kind of doing their life and all of a sudden they looked over on the left and they saw something, you know, a, a shiny red ball that turned out to be their career. And then there's probably at least somebody on this call. I mean, I know Sarah's story, so she might be one of these people. I don't know. But there's probably somebody on this call who basically said, you know, I didn't want to end up where I am. This is where I am and I'm hoping I don't stay here. Lighting. I just want a place with great lighting. You do that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, Kevin, you are never going to live this down. Not at all. For my path, I started out, you know, as a music minister and now I'm a liberal atheist lesbian. So uh, yeah, paths do change. But yeah, I, I was trying to explain to Bradley a little bit about the projects that you work on. And I feel like your the question that he had is very applicable to what you do. Um, and all I could describe was I was like, kind of like she makes Siri for healthcare records. So y'all, could you explain a little bit about what you do and how it kind of, you're helping train the computer to uh, work for the doctors, right? Except I'm not going to let y'all get off that easy because I've known y'all yeah. a long time. Gosh, so <laughs> I was a biophysics major and part of the stuff that we had to do was protein modeling. We had to figure out like what little parts could fit into certain proteins and would fit well. And like Kevin, that required a lot of just like math crunching. So we had to learn some just rudimentary computer science language. And I learned this thing called Python. I was like, what? Oh but what was really cool was the whole like figuring out like I could tell a computer what to do. I could just put in a bunch of stuff and it would put out on the screen the stuff I told it to do. And I just thought that was amazing. And I would just like play around with like Excel and Visual Basic. I made like a little calculator and I just thought it was the 
coolest thing in the world that you could like actually interface with computers beyond what somebody else wrote and make it do your own thing. And then when I got to medical school, we were using computers to help take care of patients. And I thought that was pretty cool too. But some of the stuff we had to do was like, we had to put in information about like their heart rate one place. Then we'd have to go back to our note and write it again. Then we had to go back to another thing called a flow sheet and type it in the third time. And I was like, that's not how computers work at all. <laughs> There's this concept called a variable. You put it in one place and the computer just knows how to move that information around and do all sorts of wonderful things with it. Like, why are we having to put in things like 20 different places? And I think what happened is I complained to one too many people. They're like, you should probably talk to Kevin Johnson. And I was like, <laughs> so Kevin that was right? kind enough to meet with me. And I just kind of babbled on about the stuff I was interested in. He was like, you should probably study informatics. And I was like, infer what? <laughs> and he told me about what he did. And I'd actually learned about some of the stuff he did with our prescription management, trying to prevent like people from getting medications they were allergic to and stuff like that. And I was like, wait, this is a job. I could like, I can be a doctor and do this. And it just like changed my life. Like it, it was just incredible being able to like see patients and at the same time do the stuff to improve the systems we were using to take care of patients so like sarah said i do super nerdy stuff with computers and my whole goal in life is to get a computer to understand the words i say just by talking to it so i don't know if you have a siri or alexa or google and sometimes you're like what's the weather and it'll be like yes i've added waffles to your shopping well, I think it'd be really cool if I could ask a computer, what's wrong with my patient? It said, Sarah has pneumonia. I think she might need an antibiotic called cephalosporin. And I could be like, well, that makes a lot of sense. And I'd think about that and decide if it makes sense and actually go prescribe that to her because it would be helping me. There's a lot of stuff to get that right because you got to make it understand what you're saying. You got to make it understand what drugs mean. You got to make it understand what's wrong with Sarah in the first place. A and lot. I get to work with a lot of smart people getting to figure out how to make all those pieces come together, but it all comes back to the same thing, like telling the computer what to do and actually making it understand you. And now just like literally making it understand the words you say. And this poor guy gets to sit at home with me and watch me play around with our Alexas and Googles and all of the things and helping them control our lights and TVs and mostly failing most of the time. But um, some of the time it actually works. And when it does, it's amazing. So, well, so you're the living embodiment. Thing. You are the living embodiment of my theory of what I said, because did you ever think when you decided you wanted to go to medical school that you would end up programming computers to, you know, no, but as you went along with your studies and with your life experience, here it came at you. And, you know, it's, to me, it's also a matter of being able to recognize when that opportunity comes along if uh, it's an opportunity you're prepared to take, so. Well, and, it's, and it's about being comfortable in your own skin exactly. and being curious, right? And I can tell you, we were, my, my husband and I were just discussing our grandson and I said something to him. I said, you know, I think Braylon really could be a special kid if he can get the right schooling and the right mentoring, et cetera. And, and Rob's like, well, how do you know that already? Because Braylon's 10. And I said, because he asks really insightful questions that everybody else observes, but never asks. And so supposedly uh, they, they, he, Rob was just seeing Braylon and they were driving along and Braylon says, you know, in Arizona, 
they have a freeway that is inc- that is all twisty and turny to get you to all the different places you have to go. And Rob said, oh, that's probably the 202. And Braylon goes, it is the 202. And I thought, you know, all of what he just had to think about to kind of have that dialogue included not being afraid, you know, not being afraid to ask the question, what exactly is the number for this freeway? And, you know, why is this one so different than the other one? But he was comfortable enough that he could actually ask that question and learn something from it. I think a lot of kids who, when I grew up, um, thought I was crazy because I asked a lot of questions that didn't make any sense. Like I, I can one of the embarrassing things I can remember. Jude was already shocked about my observation that not all people have the job they expected to have. So here's the other one. I remember in second grade realizing that afternoon was called that because it was literally after, after. twelve o'clock. <laughs> and and I can still remember thinking I went to the teacher and I'm like, you know, afternoon is afternoon because it's noon and then it's after that and that's why they call i'm like oh my god these words make sense and she was just like well yeah that's exactly right but it took you know i had to be okay asking dumb i guess that's a dumb question or maybe it's an insightful question i don't know i had to ask that question and that's been my whole career and i'll bet and i know from talking with ya about computers and about medicine that's been her whole career she's not afraid to ask questions like why can't the you know, the piece of information for heart rate that I'm entering here, go over here. What's making that hard? Because computers don't work that way. You have to be okay asking those questions. And often the answers will surprise you. I just asked Bradley if it was okay to mention this, but um, Bradley has ADHD and I don't. And so one of the things that's been really interesting for me as a new parent, but also um, the parent of a kid with ADHD is to hear him ask questions uh, definitely in ways that I would have never thought to, or just the way that he sees d- certain things in ways that I would have never thought about seeing them. So Bradley, give us an example of a question that you've asked that your mom was kind of like, I don't get it. I was. Oh, um, I can think of one. Okay. So he got a gift card for Christmas for Xbox and he decided he wanted to spend a certain amount of money on uh, Roblox and instead of asking, do you care if I spend X amount of dollars? He said, can I save a certain amount of money? And that was his way of making sure it was okay that he could spend a certain amount on Roblox because we kind of hate Roblox, but it's his thing. So, and, and so why did you ask it that way? So, so help, help people understand what that means. So can I save it? Can I save money by getting it this way? Tell me, tell me what that means. Like I was just asking asking if I could save that money for something later. Got it. Yes. And and your mom was confused about that because she thinks only linearly and you're thinking much more spatially. Yeah. 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 And Jane, you know, Jane loved that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh and thinking about it, you know, we talked to him a lot about um saving. And so I use the word saving a lot, um, but I think about it in a different manner. And so yeah. he was already just two steps ahead of me guess what the guess what the uh, other kids do jude needs to gather and play some roblox we have to exchange screen names at the end of this call <laughs> yes please <laughs> what were the games that uh, you uh create uh and uh, some other people created uh space and hunter about oh so remember that i loved animals right so it, it made and i would have never thought about this at the time But looking back on young Kevin, it was kind of like, well, yeah, of course. So space was about traveling 
in a galaxy and trying to populate different planets that didn't want you to populate them. So you had to either go to war or avoid them. Um, and that's space. It was a simple idea. Get your, get your people on as many planets as possible. Um, what I liked about what he had done was this whole idea that there were these learning races on different planets so that if the first couple of people who were playing the game could get on the planet, you couldn't because they had learned the ways of people and they would do different things that made it harder, right? So I'm like, wow, this is really cool. You can make computers do this. So in Hunter, I don't, I don't like to shoot animals. I like to photograph animals. But I thought, well, if it's a game, then it would be fun. So the deal with Hunter was you have you are armed with this weapon that you have to learn how to use. And if you're lucky, you'll get invited to go to really exotic places to hunt animals there. I didn't understand yeah. computer graphics very well. So I had to use like, you know, a, an A or a period. An A was like an animal and a period. So I didn't really have like clever animals. But the, the premise was the first, the first level of Hunter was you had to shoot fish while you were on the, on, the, on the side of the lake. You had to look into the water line, into the water and shoot a fish to get through that level. Well, does anybody know why that's hard? Yeah, because water refracts the... Right. So there was an angle that you had to understand that your, ah! bullet, your bullet was going to change its direction when it hit the water. So you had to figure out what the wow. angle was. So it was a little math. Uh -oh. you know, I got to practice you know, a little bit of that cosine stuff. And so <laughs> anyway, long story short, that was my first level. And it was just hard enough that, I, that when I unveiled the game, it took people a few weeks to, to win that level. Well, while they were busy playing that level, I was working on the next level, which I think, I may get one of these wrong. I think the next level were rabbits. And the deal with rabbits were that rabbits like to hide in the bushes. And so the only way that you could catch a rabbit would be to scare it out of the bush and then to, when it would um, stop between bushes, get it. But if you missed, it went into another bush and then you had to take two more times and you only had six bullets, right? So that was rabbits. So then I did deer. Deer, you had to stay perfectly still. And if you stayed perfectly still, the deer would show up and then you could try to get them. So as I was going through all the animals, I then, I was watching Peter build the space game. And I thought, you know, the learning idea is pretty cool. So I, it, I knew that I tended to always shoot from left to right, but there were other people who liked to shoot from right to left. And I said, so what I want to do is I want to follow the way you shoot, because if I can teach the animals um, as you get further and further up, that you can't shoot the way you like to shoot, like make it much more complex for you to shoot in your preferred way, then that actually adds complexity and I don't have to build as many levels. So then my, I started making these learning levels where the deer and the rabbits did different things. And if you tried to shoot from a certain direction, if you did it, they would immediately, you wouldn't hit them. And then they would immediately scamper off into some place that was much more difficult for you to get them. So then you'd lose turns because you couldn't, you ran out of stuff. So then after we got through all the land animals, and then I'll stop talking about this, I decided that I needed to go, I needed to go intergalactic. So I created an animal called the Zumquat. The Zumquat was an animal that you could only shoot. This was the coolest idea. I don't even know where it came from. The idea was you could see the Zumquat moving, 
But as soon as you stopped, like as soon as it moved, you could see it move, but you couldn't see where it then landed. You had to remember. And the only chance you actually had to kill it was to be on a different dimension. So, so imagine that you're like dealing with this plane and the animal, if you were watching it, it would run all around like this, right? And then it would be here. And then you would go down a level. You'd have to go over to where it was and then shoot up. And that's how you got the Zumpai. So that took like months for people to figure out how to maneuver. And I was, it was really interesting because, you know, people who play your game discover things you didn't realize. Like, for example, if you could get it in a corner, then you were fine. Right. So all that kind of stuff, I, I made, we made a whole bunch of different types of animals that did a whole bunch of different types of things, had shields and all sorts of stuff. Some that shot back. We made one it was it like back. multi-dimensional chess or something? Yes, like it was that. like multi-dimensional chess, but only two parts, only two players, oh. two pieces. Um, but yeah, so we, I had, we had lots of fun uh, and lots of people did it. But along the way, I started learning this whole translation step of people can tell you things about your game to make it better. You can program it. People can tell you how to translate something from a different game into your game, which makes it better. And that turns out to be a really important part of the systems I built, like the prescribing system at Vanderbilt, because I learned from watching games how to make the e-prescribing system work better. Interesting. Bradley, what's your question? Uh, uh, so what you meant about the that animal, so you're you're kind of meaning like it, you, it was like two port, you're going, you're shooting into a portal? Yes, it's essentially a, a vertical portal. Yeah. Yep. Sounds like Among Us to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like Among Us. Well, I was this. I was before Among Us. Among Us sounds like Hunter. <laughs> there you go. One of the one of the questions I have is, well, it's really more of a statement. One of my favorite words in this whole world is palindrome. So. I enjoyed reading that part. Um, do you not look back at some of your little and um, your youthful experimentation with any regret? Um, the, the summer that I spent writing the book, um, there was a section about my coming out. And I didn't oh. talk about that because I don't know how often middle schools will let kids learn about things like that. So we made a decision that that was going to be table till later but that turned out to be really important there were some things that happened then that made it pretty clear uh, why i should pick medicine and some other things um i would say if i had any regret at all and i mentioned this in one of the little videos it was probably this period of time i had and this is really important for bradley and jude probably when i realized more about myself but was afraid to um let that be something other people knew. It's easier for me to write some of these really sensitive things than to talk about them because I think I have sort of mental blocks about them. And Jane, maybe as a songwriter, you've experienced that. Um, so the story goes like this. Uh, I was at my grandmother's house most summers. My grandmother lived in the um, kind of a more deeply inner city part of Baltimore off of Federal Street and uh, Edison Highway, if you know that area. I grew up in a much more rural part. And I had a really hard time getting accepted by the kids who were in that neighborhood. When I kind of figured out that they were laughing at my expense, you know, more, in other words, laughing at me more than laughing with me when I would tell certain types of jokes, you know, it bothered me a lot. 
but it didn't bother me so much that I didn't still think the stuff was funny. Right. So, so what I ended up doing was saying, you know, I'm just not this part of my body, my, this part of who I am, you guys don't get to see. And so I started walling off my own personality so that there was kind of a part of me that went to the city and a part of me that stayed in the house and a part of me that went to the rural area that was much more kind of my authentic self. But even there, there were things I just didn't talk about very much. I didn't talk about going to my grandmother's because it seemed a little weird. Um, so by ninth grade, I had pretty much become an enigma. Uh, I had very few friends in school. I had friends in my Boy Scout troop. I had friends in the neighborhood, but I kind of went to school, went to my classes, came home. You know, I don't even remember who I had lunch with. I had two or three friends. I guess I had lunch with them, but I've like blanked all that out, blacked it out. So I don't think I had a great early high school experience because I kind of had made a decision I wasn't going to engage. And then what happened was about... 11th grade, I started, I had always been into music. I think you probably knew that too. I did a lot of stuff with music. So around 11th grade, I was playing bass and I was singing in the um, barbershop quartet and in the uh, main chorale for our school. And I started doing dinner theater and all of a sudden found my people. There were people who were unafraid curious, all doing all of these different types of, of activities and completely unafraid to be who they were. And to this day, I can still remember the after party from I Did Guys and Dolls. And in the after party, we were doing songs from Diana Ross and the Supremes, standing on the chairs in the auditorium going, stop in the name of love before you break my heart, you know, and and I can still remember doing that and thinking, this is so much fun. If, if this had been what high school was like, I would have been a completely different person. And from that point on, I kind of said, the heck with this whole um, being an enigma, which is a, another way of saying sort of like being a, being, in a, being a puzzle or being somebody that not everybody can figure out, being vague, being amorphous, that kind of a thing. Um, I said, I'm just going to be me again. And I had a great senior year. I got super involved in things. I, you know, I actually won a couple of awards. Um, and when I went into college, I just kind of took off. I was involved with all sorts of things in college. I sang, I did the choir, I consulted in the computer lab. I uh, played tennis, played badminton, uh, ran track. I was in the French club. You know, I just, just, and I would join a fraternity. So in college, I just kind of exploded and had a chance to do all the things that I found of interest. And was pleased to find out that in college, that was great. Like people wanted you to get engaged in all these things. Whereas in high school, I kind of always felt like the best way to be a high school student was to disappear. <laughs> and, um, and I can tell you another a quick story. There was a guy named Jeffrey Hines who might actually hear this, in which case, Jeffrey, I love you. Thank you for this. But Jeffrey was like my nemesis. He, he, was, he learned karate back in junior high and loved to show it on people. And he was one of these kids who I used to have fights with all the time. And Jeffrey was the cool kid. I was the not cool kid. And when I kind of disappeared in the kind of ninth grade, 10th grade, eighth grade period, um, Jeffrey kind of, you know, became super popular and all this kind of stuff. And they were all going out and there was this whole group of people who hung together. They all lived in my neighborhood, but I didn't associate with them. 
So fast forward to the last day of high school. At that point, I had gotten into Dickinson College. I had done some pretty cool things with the octopus that you guys probably read about. I had the octopus for a long time and um, I had gotten a couple of awards. I guess it was high school. I sang uh, a song that roasted the principal as part of our graduation. So I was much more out there. So Jeffrey, on our last day, we were cleaning out our lockers, comes up to me and he goes, you know, man, you figured it out a long time ago. I'm going to be and it's actually ironic. I just thought of this. He goes, I'm going to be selling Pepsi Cola vending machines and you're going to be in college going to medical school. So good for you. I, I wish I wish you the best. And I remember thinking all this all that time, you know, I, I wish I'd heard something like that two years ago. So that's a long winded way, Shannon, of saying I think the thing I regret was I couldn't I didn't have the right role models to help me be very comfortable with who I was during the period where I could have engaged more in high school, I don't know that it really changed anything. If anything, it kind of bottled up a lot of stuff that was interesting to me. And then when I got to college, I was lucky enough to pick up one that allowed me to do it. Long answer, but that's the answer. Interesting. If you, if you look back at this book, which I just loved it, I, I didn't get a chance to say that. I love this book and I love little bitty Kevin. Oh, all those little pictures, little Kevin. I, I just wish I had Jude's like... hair. <laughs> he has amazing, I, I amazing hair. Yeah. He's got amazing hair. Really? I, I agree. I'm glad you did say that. Um, Adia, is there anything that you think would have been different if you would have had that, that mentorship in your life earlier? If you would have known some of those things two years earlier, do you think it would have changed your path or do you think you would have been on that same path just sooner or? Um, so, um, so are you guys, are you guys okay with me talking a little bit my sexuality? Like, is that okay to bring up? Go for it. Yeah. That's probably the answer, Shannon. Um, I think that. You know, I realized I was gay when I was 40, okay? But I had an opportunity to realize I was gay sooner than that. Meaning there were, there were things that I think I wondered about. And the one I always tell my friends is when my, um, I didn't go to my senior prom, I didn't go to my junior prom. I tried to start dating a good friend whose name is Charlene. I started dating her just enough time that I thought we might go to the senior prom. And then I realized I just didn't want to go. I mean, like, I just didn't want to do it. And one of the themes that I really didn't get to learn about until college was that a lot of my friends had boyfriends and girlfriends, um, you know, opposite, and they couldn't live without them. It was every single minute. So people who were on the podcast can't see the chat, but Sarah just wrote, honey, singing Diana Ross of the Supremes. That's hilarious. That is hilarious. It is. It so is when true. you got the dolls, I was just like, come on. Like, well, but, but I say that also as someone who, who came out at 30. So. Yeah, but, but, most, but you'd be surprised. I mean, most people who knew me back then with a couple people had said, yeah, you know, Kevin, I thought you might be gay. But for the most part, most people were absolutely shocked. They're like, you're the most straight acting, blah, blah, blah. That I've ever met. So, um, but what happened was 
I noticed that when people would get together with their boyfriends and girlfriends, they were inseparable. It was like, I have to talk to you at dinner and then I can go home and talk to whoever, but then I've got to call you before I go to bed. And then I'm going to get on the phone again in the morning, on the weekend. And I just never had that level of engagement with anybody I dated. And so I really kind of had a very stifled life until probably late in my medical school years. Like I dated a girl named Lauren uh, all through college. She and I, and I am censoring the heck out of this conversation. That's why the pauses. She and I had made our relationship have a certain level that was okay. And then anything else wasn't okay. We, we said primarily for religious reasons. But the fact of the matter is, I would have been unbelievably uncomfortable had we done the rest. And I tried a couple of times, didn't know what I was doing. It felt very, very much like this is not natural for me, but I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't have any other role model to say, you know, it's possible that this is what's going on. I could take another hour unpacking everything that happened from medical school until I was 40. But let's just say that I really had no idea until I was 37. The first time I ever even got the words to come out of my mouth that it's possible I was gay was 37. And I look back and I, and I was talking to some friends of mine from, from college who said, yeah, you know, Kevin, you did seem really hung up about relationships like that. And you wonder, Shannon, I don't know, but I wonder what would have been like had I actually, I mean, it's possible that it, it could have been the death of me, right? I mean, back then to be a black gay guy was probably right. not a great place to be, but at least I would have known who I was a little bit earlier. I will tell you what really amazed me was when I finally came out, some good friends of mine who've known me forever and were not suspecting anything. Before they knew I came out, we had done something together and they're like, I can't figure it out, but you just seem so much more relaxed and present. And I was like smiling going, it could be that I came out. And they're like, what? You know, and they just said, but, you know, I mean, they really didn't know. But it was one of these things where I guess other people who, who were experiencing me might have been privy to the fact that I was holding back on something that they weren't holding back on. And if you've ever seen the show Love, Simon, which was a great little movie that came out a couple of years ago, it was really terrific. His mother said the exact same thing. Jennifer Gardner's character said she felt like he had a secret. And I thought, you know, I'll bet you that's what other people experienced in me. That whole lack of engagement you know, I'm sort of available, but not completely. It was probably a little bit of something that I myself didn't even realize I was holding back. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that absolutely. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, I can relate a lot to that. Um, I think for me, you know, coming out at 30, it was a lot of the same thing. You kind of feel like you have to have not a, a different persona, but a cloak almost to, uh, you know, just kind of feel like you're, you're setting in and, and fitting in with everybody. Um, but I had a lot of the same guards that you, you uh, mentioned and uh, relate to that, that you try to fit the standard, but you know that it's not necessarily the standard you feel is what works for you. And, um, you know, it definitely means there's this wall there, but mm -hmm. uh, even in just your, your platonic friendships changes um, how you fit in, you know, and, and yeah. how you joke about things or how you relate to, um, you know, movies and books and things like that. Well, I'll tell you a story that I don't tell many people that kind of ties some of this together about me and medicine and informatics even. So when I first came to Vanderbilt, I had just figured out that I was a married man who was gay. 
and didn't know what to do about it, but I didn't talk about it. I was trying to find a support group. And so when I was seeing patients in the, in the hospital, pediatric patients, they asked me to cover, uh, I guess it was probably right before Christmas. And I'll never forget this. There was this kid that came in and I actually wrote this up. It's a, I mean, literally, I wrote up a story about this. Yeah, have you seen this article? You may not have, so I'll tell you about it. I, so I saw this kid who his parents thought he had some kind of a brain infection. It was an 18-year-old who had, um, had a strep infection and since that point had become incontinent, meaning he could not hold his bowels or his bladder, and he couldn't he couldn't look his parents in the eye. He was really what we call dissociated. He was just kind of living his life, but he didn't pay attention to time, missed, missed the school bus, just stood there, just messed up. And so we brought him into the hospital for a brain biopsy. And while I was getting the history, uh, I asked a couple of questions. And the first couple of questions were, this is an 18-year-old swimmer who had spent a lot of time at the pool. His parents really didn't know much about what happened at the pool. Um, he was also in between doing that, had been a dancer and was very active in dinner theater. And there was something else about him that I just sat there thinking, this kid could be gay. And um, okay. so we started talking some more. And then his, I asked his parents to leave. And I did what's called a HEADS exam, which is something we do for adolescents, where you ask questions about their home environment, education, activities, um, their diet, and then you ask about suicide and sexuality and some other things. And so I went through the HEADS questions, and then we got to a certain point, and he said, uh, I, I guess I said, why don't you ask me the questions? And he said, why are all your friends girls? And for those of us who are gay, it is very common that young kids have some tension being around the person of the same gender, especially if they are not attracted, especially if they're attracted to them. Um, and that's why, you know, boys can play with boys really easily sometimes because girls make them very uncomfortable and they don't know why. As adults, we probably do know why, but they don't get it when they're younger and vice versa. So he said, why are all your friends girls? And I thought to myself, you got to be kidding. I've just read like five books about coming out, like the best little boy in the world and on and on and on that all talk about this. So I literally was thinking, it's like God put me here for me and for him so that I could recognize that this is my contribution to healthcare to know enough about this to save this kid from this brain biopsy thing. So I answered the question the way it made sense to me to answer it as if I was him. I said, well, I, I just feel like I have a lot more fun with my girlfriends than the boyfriends. And he said, no, because the boyfriends make you feel weird and uh, you feel happier with your girlfriends. Wow. And I said, okay. And like every other question that he asked me was basically like I could turn the pages of a book that says you might be gay if, right? <laughs> and I was just like, check, check, check. But the, I knew the answers, right? Like I was already, I was experiencing this like probably a month before I had gone through recognizing that this was a part of the phenotype of men who often turn out to have sex with men or gay. And 
that he's asking me all these questions. So it turns out his, his parents come back in the room at the end and his mother stares at him and starts crying. And I said, what's, what's going on? She goes, he's looking at me. He hasn't looked at me in a year. And I said, well, you know, we had a nice conversation and, um, you know, I'll see him in the morning, et cetera. So I get back on the hall. I get back to the hall the next morning and the nurses see me and start applauding. And I said, what's going on? And they're like, you cured that kid. Uh, last night, he like snapped out of it. He started asking his parents all these questions and he's totally okay. And I went in the room. He didn't even remember at the time talking to me, but it was kind of like, so why am I here? And can I go home? I feel fine. And, you know, his mom's like, he hasn't had a problem going to the bathroom all night. He slept really, really well last night. He didn't toss and turn. He's looking at everybody. He's asking us how everybody's doing. He is a totally different child. And so it turns out that he had a conversion reaction, which is a known medical problem that um, he was able to get fixed through whatever conversation it was that we had. And then I wrote this up and put it, it was the first known example of a conversion reaction due to um, you know, this issue. And to the point about being curious, I recognized that it was an important enough observation that it should be an article. So I had a couple of experts who were psychologists write it up with me. And now it's in the literature for people to learn about. And it was actually referenced recently in a big study that they did looking at dissociation reactions in children. So, you know, it turned out that it all related. Let me ask you a question, which probably has nothing to do with anything. Um, but do you think that he asked you those? I mean, this may be obvious to you, but it just kind of. Yeah. Do you think that maybe he asked you these questions because he recognized something? Yeah in you that was uh that he was feeling or that he could relate to yes and I think, you know yeah. i mean it was almost like a self-discovery through you i i am sure to, to to sarah's point about the um you know diana ross and the supremes i'm sure <laughs> that i gave off a vibe that he probably said i can trust this guy in, in whatever consciousness he had at the time um I well, it's did. a vibration. That's it. It is. It's a vibration. Yeah. And we all um, give off vibrations, you know. Yeah. It's energy and frequencies. Yeah. And I agree. Yeah. So I think some of it was that. I think he just, I think he felt more comfortable asking some questions. And of course, the fact that his parents weren't in the room. His parents, by the way, were fundamentalist Christians who homeschooled, right? So it was kind of like, okay, here's another checkbox right there. So. <laughs> Okay, we're, we're way over time, guys. So are there any final questions people want to ask me? Uh, do you still play, uh, play tennis or when did you quit and why? I have stopped almost nothing that I love doing. I still <laughs> play tennis. Um, I used to play um, uh, table tennis a lot, also known as ping pong. Um, I now play, I play racquetball, I play squash, I've played badminton for a long time, had really great relationships in college with um, one of the classics professors, a guy named Leon Fitz, who was a badminton player. And then we played racquetball and squash together. Um, but I hurt my shoulder. So now I'm going to start playing pickleball, which is kind of tennis oh, for old people. Yes, pickleball. <laughs> I can play that. Yeah. So yeah, I still do it, but I do everything. I mean, I still, I actually, a good friend of mine here, um, I was a bass player, you know, upright bass and I played an all state bass and I did, I went to a lot of band camp type things. 
And one of my best friends from that time is also here at Penn. And he was over last weekend and we're going to get together and just go to his house and play some classical music. I've got a lot of music and we're going to just play through some stuff. And he's a singer. We both were in barbershop quartet together. So we're going to, you know, get a little group together and just kind of have music jam sessions. So I still love, I love, I love who I was. Um, The only thing I can probably say that I don't do now as much as I did back then was I sang all the time. I sang in a group called the Baltimore Choral Arts Society. Um, I did, I did studio work with Dave Brubeck for a long time. And when I came in town to Nashville, I decided to do completely pro work. So I did all studio time. And then as the studio started merging, those jobs kind of fell apart and I was getting divorced at the same time. So I basically stopped. So I only do weddings these days and I may get back into acapella, but my voice isn't what it used to be. And my tone isn't what it used to be. So I have some work to do. But thank you for asking that. You'll have to come to New Mexico and play pickleball with me. <laughs> I sure I will absolutely come to New Mexico and play pickleball with you. I would love it. Hopefully I'll be good enough that I won't totally embarrass myself. It's got some funky rules designed to basically e- make everybody equal. Okay. I had Jane, I have a question for you. Okay. What song in your repertoire? Oh my God. First, just, 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 I'm going to okay. play it. I'm going to play it, but not for everybody else here. What song in your repertoire do you think for best exemplifies the idea of coming of age wow coming of age you know i wrote a song called dare to dream and uh that that kind of for me i wrote it for my son one of my sons Uh and um to me that's the essence of accomplishing anything is daring to actually put yourself out there to do it so you have to i'm one of these people that believes if you see it you can be it yeah yeah. And so you can have you at to... least can you at least tell us some of the lyrics? Oh, it's it's about, you know, it's it's a, about a relationship, of course, you know, about a young couple. Uh, and let me hold on. Let me <laughs> uh, you and me, baby, can baby, of course, you and me, baby, can meet, <laughs> can meet for the weekend to solidify all our plans. We'll follow a jet stream to someplace exotic, all in the name of romance. Because we're still young and in love, and we just believe we can do anything if we dare to dream. And I think it was actually, it was a big hit for an artist named Jody Messina. Ah. And, uh, and I had a lot of people, I, I played it once at the Bluebird. Uh-huh. And I was just at, played at the Bluebird a few weeks ago. I played it one night at the Bluebird, and a young girl came up to me after the show, and, and she was just adorable, and she said to me, I just moved to Nashville. Literally, she said, my car is in the parking lot with my stuff still in it. I haven't even gotten to my new apartment yet. I just wanted to come to the Bluebird because I moved here because I want to be a songwriter. And I said, well, that's why I moved to Nashville. And she said, yeah, but you don't understand. I just drove from Wisconsin. Oh, wow. It took me, she said, I did it in almost three days, she said, and the entire way here, I played that song in my car, Dare to Dream. She said, and I walked in here and you wrote it and you're singing it. She said, I couldn't believe it. She said, it showed me that I made the right decision coming. And I thought to myself, that's it. We know when, when something is pivotal yeah. And it makes that little click, you know, in our brain. You said something about 
who you were. We are all still who we were. We just are grown up version of who we were. So we have more dimensions, but um, recognizing who we are, that, that was what Dare to Dream for me was. It was, like I said, I wrote it for my son, but it was just being able to get out there and saying, you know what, I wanna do this and I'm going to do it. And come what may, I'm either gonna make a total fool of myself or this is where I'm meant to be and this is what I'm meant to be doing. And you have to have yeah. the, you have to be brave. This <laughs> is the worst analogy. And I'm sure Shannon is going to just crack up when she hears me say this, but you say that we are who we were, right? The way I think of it is like this. So my problem is I know from the pictures in the book that that kid and I are the same people, <laughs> but it takes an enormous amount for me to channel how that kid was and how, what he reacted to what he didn't like, what he was thinking, motivation. You know, there's certain stories that I can remember pretty well, but it literally is like, that is a completely different kid than who well, I Well, you know, I think if you realize that you are who you are because of that kid. I clearly ah. had to get it. You know, you get to the top of the ladder, but if you're so big, you can't see the ladder anymore. You may not remember what the ladder was like, is, I guess. the And now I now I've tried to explain this to people. before. <laughs> it's the whole, you know, what, what, 20-year-old Kevin could learn from 60-year-old Kevin. There were periods in my life where how to ex access who I was back then are impossible. And now there's other periods where I feel like I'm, I'm, I've had enough wisdom that if I could get 20-year-old Kevin to talk a little bit, I could probably connect. Interesting. When I was seven or eight, I had a lot of older friends. I used to, Mr. Teitelbaum, who you see in the book, Mr. Joe, we walked all the time and he and I talked about everything. Talked about, you know, my dad's too busy to take me doing these things, but at least he could and all that. Eight, seven, 16 year old Kevin didn't talk about any of those things. And, and if you had asked me, in fact, I've said this to myself before, if somebody had asked me if I was gay when I was 16, first of all, I didn't know, but I would have genuinely said no, even if I knew I was, because I would have never brought it up. There were mm. lots of things about me at 16 that people would ask and I would just flatly deny. Just like, you don't need to know it. My Boy Scout troop knew, knew, you know, the Boy Scout troop knew me as a Boy Scout. The singing people knew me as a singer, but the singing people didn't know I was a Boy Scout. Like I just didn't, I didn't connect those worlds. Um, and I, and that was, you know, un until I got much older, even when I left Vanderbilt, I mean, when I left Hopkins to go to Vanderbilt and my then wife decided to have a surprise party, she went through my address book and, and selected all these people. And it turns out that the one thing people in my address book had in common is they weren't really good friends because I didn't need an address book for my really good friends. I memorized all their information, right? <laughs> and so it was a whole bunch of people from all of these parts of my past life and a couple of my good friends who she knew. And I just, I walked in and I thought, these people have never met. They won't get along. We are all completely, and of course it turns out they're all great together. But yeah. I was so nervous when I walked in and I saw it. I just thought, you know, how are like these people I know from Boy Scouts going to do with these people I know from college? They're just, you know, they're just, they're apples and jaguars. I mean, they're just completely they different. They had a common denominator and the common denominator was you. But I was too whatever to realize that. There you go. So, but so fast forward to now, before we left Nashville, we used to have these big Christmas parties and I would invite lots of people to come. 
And, and they were from all over the place. They were my friends from the human rights campaign. There were people from the music industry, some songwriters I know, some black entrepreneurs that I knew. And, and it got to the point with the party after, you know, pre-pandemic that we were like the house that people came to, to see the people they saw last year, not to see us, right? <laughs> so there'd be all these parties happening throughout the house. And, you know, I'd kind of go over and they're like, oh no, we're fine. We, you know, we met Abby last year <laughs> and we're just here to see Abby and, you know, to see the group we saw last year. So it became this whole event for people and I didn't even realize it. Okay. Thanks everybody so much. Jane. Send Thank me that you, song. Kevin. Thank